Welcome to the Art of Relationships. I'm your host, Lee Michael, a father and entrepreneur on a mission to explore human connection. In this show, we take a journey through the complex world of relationships, from friendships and dating to co-parenting and the intricacies of team and work dynamics. We'll unravel the threats that bind connections with others, and most importantly, ourselves. Through personal stories and insights from experts, we'll delve into the philosophy psychology, art, and science of relationships. Maybe we'll gain a better understanding of communication and connection along the way. Whether you're seeking to deepen your existing relationships, navigate the challenges of new ones, or expand your perspective on human interaction, you're in the right place, or so we hope. Welcome to the Art of Relationships. My name is Lee Michael. I'm the host of the Art of Relationships podcast. In this episode with me today, I have Vanessa Vancour. I hope I said that right. An expert storyteller. Uh, we're here today to explore uh, the art of storytelling and the importance of conveying stories and narratives, um, whether it be in events and words, images, sounds, actions, and how we do that and how it's a fundamental human activity. So it can be used for entertainment, education, preserving culture, even conveying themes, myths, um, and moral values. It's one of the oldest and most fundamental things that we do, right? And so Vanessa is a accomplished journalist. She's a media consultant, bilingual strategic storyteller, and her journey takes her from uh, a TV anchor, which I'm super curious about and we're going to get into, to establishing her own consulting business. She is a single mom and uh, very similar to my case, uh, a lot of storytelling happens as a single parent, especially in dating. So uh, that's an interesting part we can explore here. But most importantly, guys, we're going to talk about um, how stories shape our relationships, worldview, and connect us to the human experience. So thank you, Vanessa, for joining us today. Thank you. I hope I got that right uh, in terms of that bio there. And uh, let's just like really jump out the gate here and tell me a little bit about being a TV anchor and uh, where that started and kind of where that drove you into getting out of into your own consulting business and why. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up in Southern California and when I was in high school, I started getting things in the mail for colleges and different programs. And uh, that's when I discovered that journalism was a degree you could pursue. And I always knew that I liked reading and I loved reading stories. I liked writing stories. And the idea that I could have a career where all I did was learn people's stories and tell stories I just thought was really neat. So that's how I got into TV. And really the only journalism I was exposed to in my upbringing was television. My mom watches, still watches a lot of TV. So I was really familiar with the LA TV anchor scene. I really thought that they were all actors. I didn't know that was a thing you could do. And um, I went to a, journal, a really wonderful journalism school at, at USC in Los Angeles and pursued broadcast journalism. So specifically to train to be a TV anchor. And back then I was learning how to, you know, cut tape on VHS and my reel was on the VHS tape. I mean, it's, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but that's how I was sending out my resume tape when I graduated from college is I would have to mass produce all of these VHS tapes with my on-camera experience and then mail them out to markets all over the U.S. And 
I ended up in Reno that way. I, there was a TV station at the time that was at the time, this was its claim to fame. It was the first HD television station in Reno. And it, they were hiring bilingual journalists because they were producing with the same staff, a six o'clock Spanish newscast and, and a 10 o'clock English newscast, which is really cool and actually mm. really ahead of its time. And that's really what kickstarted my career. And in hindsight, I wish I had actually gone into public radio because I was really uncomfortable with the attention you get when you're on camera because people, you know, it's weird. Like they watch you on TV and they think it's okay to comment on your appearance. And mm -hmm. it really took away. I felt like I was working so hard on these stories and the emails I got were almost always related to my appearance, which also tends to be a very gendered experience where more women in television tend to experience that than men. And thanks to social media now, I think a lot more women are talking about online and like the, it's really awful. Some of it is like borderline bullying, but anyway, mm -hmm. I think I would have really liked public radio. Eventually I've had the chance to work in public radio, but yeah, that's how I got started. And so I always, when I look back over my career, I see this thread. What I really wanted to do was tell stories. What I've always wanted to do is get to talk to people and, and tell stories that are unique and that sort of long path on how I got to where I am now is really centered on helping other people tell their stories because people, it often takes the form of public speaking, which I do. And I coach people who want to be public speakers, but a lot of what happens in the keynotes I do is people feel really inspired and they realize, Oh my gosh, I've never really thought about my own story and how do I get started? So I work with individuals and then um, big organizations and do some coaching with teams around storytelling and how the stories we choose to tell can also help to create spaces where people feel like they can belong as their whole selves. So it really mm -hmm. is about, you know, stories, creating spaces of belonging, which is really the path that I am pursuing more wholeheartedly in this, in this next year of business. It's amazing. I really like how you frame that in terms of creating by telling stories, we're creating spaces of belonging for people. And in a way that's also implies inviting other people in to be part of that experience, right? Um, and it's interesting because when we tell stories, especially at least from my perspective, when we tell stories about ourselves, it can be very vulnerable, right? So how, how have you balanced telling your story throughout, you know, from this TV anchor to um, building your own business, how have you balanced the revealing of who you are and telling your own story with that feeling of, you know, showing, you know, being seen, right? Being heard and being vulnerable. So what, what do you do to, you know, on a very practical level, right? Like if you think about it, when you're public speaking, you're in front of a stage and you're saying something, what is something that you do to, to acknowledge and also work through being able to tell your story? That is such a good question. I definitely felt something stir inside of me when you were asking it because I, oh, that's a really wonderful question because I think, I think a lot of us are really uncomfortable telling our, not just true stories, but stories in which we're actually seen for who we are is really scary. I think it's really easy to tell stories around projects or accomplishments or sort of these like external things we do because it has less to do with us than it has to do with 
you know, this thing that we worked on, which is still communicating mm. values and what we find important, but that is still something I really struggle with. And for me, that, that catalyst moment was several years ago in 2017, I was invited to give a TEDx talk. And I always tell people, the story I always tell people now is that I said no, because it made me really uncomfortable. This idea of me getting up on stage and telling a story about me and my family just felt like it wasn't really interesting. And I just really didn't think that I was the person to do that. And and at the time, I didn't recognize what you're getting at is also meant telling parts of me that I really had not told a lot of people and then doing it on this big stage. And then it lives online and people can find it. And it's been the most valuable lesson in my one of my most valuable lessons in my life thus far, because that has opened so many doors for me and connected me with people with whom I genuinely feel really aligned and in a way that feels like there's been an impact, whether that's an aha moment that happened for the other person. And so that really changed everything for me. And so, and it's interesting because at the same time, excuse me, the same time when I was doing that talk, I was a professor at the university in the journalism department. And it's funny because when I look back at when I started my journalism professor career, I was 30. I just turned 30. And I, I think I looked young for my age. And so I was working really hard for people to take me seriously. And so I, I sort of adopted this persona of like super serious professor and really mm -hmm. hard rules and, you know, rubrics and stuff. And then over this each semester, I started to soften a little bit in the sense that I just started talking about myself a little bit more. Like I would share little things that weren't super deeply personal, but I'm a single mom and my kids are this old, or I really enjoy mountain biking. So when I'm not working, this is what I do outside. And I started to notice how that changed the dynamic in the classroom because suddenly I wasn't just this professor person in this, all, it's already in a space where there's a power imbalance, but I was becoming human and I was able to connect with some of my students in a way that if I had maintained that other persona, I never could have. So the mm -hmm. feedback I get in my speaking engagements is people will tell me, you just seem so authentic. And I think, you know, that's the greatest compliment I can get. And also mm -hmm. part of it is I'm not trying to be a public speaker in the same way that I think you hear news anchors, you know, we sort of assume this voice and this persona. I, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously I prepare my speeches and I do a lot of research, but I also talk the way that I speak. And, and I think that's really important because at least my style of presenting, there is an element of a performance, but I still hope that the person they meet on stage or on, in real life is the same person they're seeing in the videos. And and so when I try to coach that in other people, you know, I'm like, it's, it, there is a performative aspect to it, but it's finding that part of you that is still you so that mm -hmm. it matches in real life. And I don't know, hopefully I answered your question because it's a really hard, it's hard yeah. to feel like you can touch that, you know? So. Yeah. I think that's a really great distinction to bring up between your speech, like how you talk and who, and who you are, like how you represent yourself in any scenario. So in, in, let's just say you're on this podcast now, there's really nothing you could have prepared for because you have no idea what questions I'm going to ask. But the way that you can respond is in alignment with how you talk in general, right? And though there is performative elements to almost what I would argue 
anything we do, right? Like we're, we're, you know, we go out and get a coffee the way we speak, you know, to a cashier, the way that we show up and coach our kids on the soccer pitch. Like there are elements to performance that go along with that. But um, I think the fundamental is ensuring that the alignment of your speech and how you talk and then how you embody yourself is kind of in alignment. I feel like it's almost like three things. It's like how you're carrying yourself, right? Your like actions are aligned with your speech and then the way that you talk and the way that you uh, communicate your voice, like the way that your your tonality and the way that you stand, right? Posture playing a role there. And then um, the words that you use and your personality coming out with those words, right? And that's something that... Um, Recently, someone commented to me on when I when I was talking about starting the new podcast again and and how I speak. It was interesting because they highlighted that that she said that doesn't really sound like your voice. And I was like, really? I was like, what is my voice? And I was like, that's so interesting. And I thought about it for a while because I feel like my voice also has evolved with how I've grown and changed over the last couple of months. And one particular thing I would note that I feel has changed is the, what I would call, I guess the, um, perhaps the, the, maybe not frequency is not the right word, but the, my composure and kind of the um, general way that I'm speaking about things, I've slowed things down a little bit. And I think that's something I've noticed and I've been intentional in doing that for a reason. But I also think that it reflects my current state in general of where I am in my life and how I feel, right? Like I don't feel very stressed out. I'm not as anxiety. I'm not as, I'm not working on many projects at once. And so I feel like that self-regulation of being more relaxed and calm and approaching my life has now come across in the way that I communicate and speak. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. Absolutely. It's so great to have people like this person that pointed that out to you to reflect that back. Because I'm mm. assuming they must they must have known you, you know, before this period of your life or during, and mm. to be able to have someone outside of you say, I'm noticing something different. Different mm. is not good nor bad. It is just a difference. And and for someone to reflect that to you and for you to have that moment of pause and say, You're right, it is different. And this is why is really powerful. And the intention, which is what you said early on and what you were saying is huge. And I've done a lot of interviews over the course of my career. And I think my favorite people to observe or the thing that I've observed in people that I think that's a good storyteller or that's a good interviewee are those people who just take a breath and take a moment to think about something. Mm -hmm. They're not rushed. They're also really good at saying, I don't know what the answer is, or I have to think about it. And, but there is, there's sort of this calmness to the way that they respond that isn't rushed. And it's interesting because when I've coached people who want to be public speakers, and I see this mostly in the Q and A, just there's this urgency to answer it. And it might be nerves or it might be making sure you land the answer. And my feedback always is take a minute to listen to what the question was. Mm -hmm and digest it and reflect it back before you try to answer that. And I know to observe that now because I used to be the person that wasn't really listening and would just start answering and realize I totally was the mark, you know? So yeah, that, that 
breath you're taking, the intention you have, you're also in full alignment with yourself. And that is mm-hmm. all coming through in the way that you're talking and how cool to have someone notice that. Yeah, you're right. And so that's actually a really great point on a very practical level of when you're coaching clients on public speaking to tell them to take a breath, you can pause. The silences are opportunities to have that self-reflection, right? And and play back to yourself, how would I respond to this? And I think that for me, that's something that I also have to learn or ha- have learned and been learning. And it's really interesting because I came from a place where as a as someone who's more inclined to entrepreneurship and doing lots of projects and very quick to execute on things, I noticed in myself that that's part of how I speak. And that's the thing that I wanted to work on in, in building my new kind of public speaking skills, if you will, because it, because excitement can play a factor for me. It's not nerves. It's actually the opportunity to speak excitedly and passionately about something that will impact how I deliver what I'm saying. And it may not hit as much or may not resonate as much because of the speed at which I'm saying it. And it doesn't give people a chance to digest what I'm saying. So in essence, good storytelling and good speaking, one element is being able to measure kind of the, the how much you're saying and how fast you're saying it so that people can take a moment, you know, knowing your audience partly, right? And knowing who's on the other end. And I even noticed that in my own personal relationships um, as of late a lot, I'm taking a lot more time to give them space as well as their own storyteller and me as a listener, and then knowing when to switch those roles. That's so good. I'm reading a book right now called How to Listen. If my friend recommended it to me and it's I just put that in my cart in my oh, Amazon. Good. Please tell yeah. me when you get into it, what you think of it. I am about halfway through and it's so awesome. You're going to love it because of everything you just said, you're going to read these chapters and feel like it's everything you've been saying, at least in this conversation. That's so awesome. <laughs> it's so great. And one of the things the author talks about is that, that we tend to speak at about 125 words per minute but our brain can process 400 words per minute. And so what you were just saying, there is a lot of science around how we are processing what people are saying. And then the book goes in to talk about different kinds of personalities in the room. So there are people who just want the facts. They don't want the story around it. So to your point, you need to know what kind of folks you're speaking to and and what kinds of things that they will tend to listen to. And then the part that I'm really interested in because I spend a lot of time talking about bias is when we listen, noticing when we're listening for similarities versus listening for when we're listening for differences. And we tend to, because of all of the implicit biases we carry, we're almost always listening for similarities. And it takes a great deal of intention to listen for differences, not to interrupt or correct or make your point, but just to be cognizant Mm -hmm. of allowing new information to enter your brain. So I can't wait to hear what you think of this book. It's been really uh, helpful for me too, in term- and also helpful as I'm continuing to develop curriculum for the folks I'm working with. Amazing. Yeah, I'm stoked. I, we'll, we'll do like a, maybe we'll do an episode two on the art of listening because I feel like to be a good storyteller, you need to be a good listener. I feel like it's, it's yin and yang for this. So 
Here's a good interesting quote I was going to bring up, which you kind of already touched upon, but I like to pepper these quotes in here as a piece of discussion, but I don't really know who this is and I didn't look her up. I just saw this quote. It's Maya Angelou says, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. And so I find that so interesting when you were speaking about it earlier, not knowing how to kind of tell your story at first, right? And exploring, you know, having these self-doubts of, um, is my story relevant? Does this matter to anybody? It's not that interesting. And the the interesting part about that is I think a lot of us can relate to that in terms of feeling like, you know, we're I'm not worthy of sharing this story. My experience is not... I'm not, it's not valid for anybody else, but the truth is often, I feel like these very deeply personal journeys that we're on and experiences that we have are probably likely very relatable to a lot of people. And in fact, by sharing them, we actually build much stronger connections and also heal in the process of storytelling. So in relationship, in relation to your journey, um, is that something that resonates with you in terms of this healing process that you've gone through by telling your story? Oh yeah, absolutely. And what a powerful quote. Again, I definitely felt like the physical reaction when you read it. Yeah. I think there's another part of that, which is the stories that are within us that we haven't yet shared for a number of reasons. And there's often this disconnect between the truth of our story, and then the stories we're telling ourselves. And I think before we can get to a point where we can truly tell our story, and I always tell people, you know, start with folks who've earned the right to know that story. You don't have to start by telling a room full of people and, you know, probably getting on stage for a TEDx talk is not the best way to do it for the first time. But, you know, start with the group of folks who've earned that right with whom you can practice and, and, but I think before you can even do that, you have to get super clear on what narrative you're making up in your head, which in my case was, this doesn't matter. It isn't relevant. It's not important. It doesn't deserve to be shared. And whatever it was that compelled me to say yes, and obviously do that talk since then, what I've uncovered within myself is that I held this belief that the only stories worth telling were stories in which there had been a lot of struggle and in which the character, in this case, me, had overcome these big things. And I didn't see myself as someone who had overcome these big obstacles because I was constantly in comparison to others and thinking, well, this isn't that bad because I know someone else who's gone through something worse or I wasn't the person who lived this. And so I think the first thing we need to do is acknowledge the stories we're making up or the stories we're telling ourselves. And then we can get clear on what our story really is and then decide, you know, where and with whom do we share that, you know, but because I do think that part of the healing for me was re realizing that this story I had been carrying and, and not sharing necessarily in a very public space has helped others heal and has helped other people, at least through the messages they sent me say, I see myself in your story and it's helped me realize I'm not alone. I'm not the mm -hmm. only one who has felt the way that you described. And that in turn for me has been incredibly healing and validating that there is a lot of importance to my lived experience. And, and I too feel less alone because I know there are a lot more folks that, you know, that sort of relate to the experience I've had. And yeah, it's been incredible. So I think 
you know, it sort of gets to the work that you're doing with people that you're coaching is we tell ourselves all kinds of stories in our mind. And I think if we started to write those down or say them out loud, we'd realize we're pretty far off the mark, you know, or we're, we're almost always being way too hard on ourselves. Yeah. And, and one question there is, I mean, I'd love to hear what that story is that you shared uh, for all the people out there listening that don't know what the stories you shared. And secondly, is a practical technique for people that are struggling with that sense of self-worth and sharing a story they, that may not, they feel is valid, is writing that down and acknowledging that narrative a form of working through that? Is that something that's helpful and that has helped you? Yeah, I, to answer the second part, my the story I, I was told was really my origin story. So I tell people sometimes if you have a lot of stories sort of swimming in your head, or sometimes people have a hard time really sort of like connecting with the idea of what a story is, I just start with your origin story. You know, where did you come from? Where did you grow up? Um, and then you start to, as you start to write the story, I'm a big fan of writing by hand, but whatever method works for you. Um, to just write down, like, where did I come from? You know, and yeah. that's what my story was, is, was a story about my experience growing up in Southern California. My mother's from Mexico. My dad's from Massachusetts. So my family from that side is French Canadian and my mother's Mexican. And I grew up in Southern California, which has a large Hispanic population. And even then my whole life, I've been told that I don't look Hispanic. I don't, my accent is weird. And I didn't really recognize the, all the ways in which people were projecting their own biases in my life until I did this talk and recognized how those experiences really shaped me. Specifically, it really taught me as a very young person to not make assumptions about other people. So instead of asking or saying, hey, it's really nice to meet your grandfather, which happened to me a lot because my dad was older than my mom to ask people, Hey, how are you guys related? Or what's the relationship here? Which is so much more respectful. You don't run the risk of possibly insulting someone. And so that was a lesson I carried my whole life was just ask people, you know, people assumed my mother was my nanny and that's why I spoke Spanish. And I just remember as a child, not, having the vocabulary to understand what was happening, but just feeling so frustrated and so disappointed and really confused, honestly, and why people wouldn't just ask me who my mom was or what our relationship was. And so that has helped, I think, a lot of people because they recognize themselves in the story because they too present as white, like I tend to do, but also, you know, I speak fluent Spanish and I'm super connected to my Mexican culture. So that was really the story. The story was about, hey, this is my family. This is where I came from. This, you know, my mom was an immigrant. This is how my parents met, which is really a funny story. And so my TEDx talk was about a lived experience peppered with research and data, but it wasn't a talk about me being an expert, which I also really struggle with because my training as a journalist is I was never the expert. My job was to research and, and interview experts. So I really thought also for me that meant it lacked legitimacy, but what I will say is that lived experiences are super legitimate and I had to learn that. And so, so I go back mm. to what the starting point for people that I often recommend is start with your origin story and you'll start to see as you're writing the story, hopefully how these moments in your life on where you grew up geographically or what your family dynamic or makeup was really did inform 
maybe still doesn't form the way that you approach everything, relationships and work and friendships and just the way that we relate to others is, as you know, so closely tied and influenced by how we grew up. And so origin stories are a really great place to start if you're feeling inspired to start documenting your own story. Yeah, you got to get a handle of your own story and then be the be the lead to tell your story to kind of work through it. Mm -hmm. I, and so in essence, your storytelling was a way for you to explore your own identity as this person who came from a household of, you know, uh, a blended household culturally, right? And, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's what it sounds like, right? So you basically explored your identity and through some questioning, were able to then um, understand your story and then tell that story so others could hear, like, could hear your story and also relate to some of those, what I would say would be very common themes, right? Like understanding my own identity, exploring my own cultural background. Mm -hmm. And so your story, your, your personal journey was kind of a thread that is in a framework of these perennial storytelling themes, cultural identity, you know, language, probably food, culture, how we communicate about our identity. And that's what I think is what makes really good storytelling. That's why people can relate to it, right? And that's why they send you messages being like, oh, I see myself in your story because those guideposts are all elements we can all relate to regardless of our cultural background, our language, you know, where we come from geographically. And these are kind of the perennial themes, right? The perennial myths, mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, and I think it also helps people recognize this times maybe where they might have said something, you know, that made an assumption about someone. But also, I mean, we all make assumptions. Mm -hmm. No one is free of making them. But I think the other side of that is if someone necess didn't necessarily relate to my story, to your point, those are the pillars that sort of are universal for everyone. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think some things, and just kind of going into some of those universal pillars, um, it's it's interesting because for me, there's a book that really impacted me. I don't know if you read this, but it's Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. Mm, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a discussion about um, myth and the art of storytelling and essentially understanding how these perennial themes and myths are universal to the human experience and how we can all relate to them regardless, again, of our geographic location of where we're born, our cultural background. Um, so yeah, it goes over things like, you know, universal symbols, right? Like the hero, the mentor, the, you know, the shadow, um, psychological development and transformation, right? So it's not just a physical journey, but it's a, it's a metaphor for psychological growth. And so in essence, right, your, your own journey from standing, you know, being a TV anchor and, and being exposed by being seen on TV and then saying, oh, I wanted to be a radio you know, on radio. And then now you've kind of come full circle to go do your TEDx talk. And now you're coaching people. It's like you went through this whole journey, right? You had to go through the experience of feeling that sense of un super uncomfortable being in front of the camera and then kind of receding and then like then coming back because you've transformed. Mm -hmm. So um, that book is amazing. And that that that's something I think that like it's it it is really telling that the art of storytelling is what literally bridges 
like the human divide. It's like if food, food does that also. And I love food, obviously. So like, I'm sure everybody does, but it's just like food is like Anthony Bourdain, right? It's like, he was an exact example of someone who, who was promoting that in essence, what I think that principle of like food bridges, cultures, languages. I, I also think that storytelling is, is what bridges culture and languages. Yeah. So, 100%. yes. And uh, yeah, so highly recommend that book. I know active listing we got on that. Maybe we do like a swap. You read active, yeah. the article and you read, uh, you read that and I'll read that. Sounds good. I like it. Book club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And so how, and you know, on that note then, do you coach your clients in, in advising them to be more active readers and, and read more to be able to tell better stories and public speak? So if someone comes to you and says, listen, I, I want to be a public speaker. It's like, is part of being a good public speaker both, I mean, I would say on the one hand, is it is it being able to write out things, right? Not just type on a keyboard, because I do think there's a difference of learning actually in how you absorb information. That's my take, but is it is it both saying, hey, you need to be able to write and also read so you understand stories before you can fully articulate what your story is? Is that something that you work through with your clients? Yes, there are certainly some technical components to it. And I will have my clients read the official TED book that was written by the gentleman who founded the TED Talks, because that really speaks to the TED model on how they think about storytelling. But I think it's a, I mean, the TED, TED Talks are there's a, there's a very clear formula to them. And so I start there because there is a technical component to it. Um, Writing is really hard. So often what I do for my clients is, um, you know, they sort of just spill their story and I help them craft it, which it's hard to tell our own stories because again, we're weaving in our own criticism and inner dialogue. And so it's hard, it helps to have an outside person do it. And in fact, in the TEDx process, every talk went through many rounds of edits and worked with many editors. And I think that's true for any story. And I always tell people that in the journalism space, you have multiple editors review your work before anything is published for a number of reasons. Accuracy is part of it, but we need someone outside of us to be able to say, this is superfluous. This is the part I was most interested in. And it's truly an iterative process. And it takes a while to sort of find the rhythm of it. But there are lots of formulas. And so I always recommend that book. And then to the second part of that is recognizing all of the ways in which storytelling is already present in your life. And that can be watching something like TEDx or TED Talks, because there's so many of them on YouTube and they're really great podcasts where you can listen to TED Talks and hear the speakers about you know how their stories came together. But also I think broadening your idea of what a story is, certainly through entertainment, right? Films, shows, those are all stories. Um, but there are stories present in other places. And so it's listening, learning how to listen when you're in partnership with someone else or you're with someone else. It's also rethinking like in the business world, when you're doing a sales pitch, that should be a story. And, mm -hmm. and really thinking about all the ways in which stories are present, but maybe you're not seeing it that way. So there's definitely, again, the technical component consuming stories that are very obvious stories, like the examples that we talked about, but then really sort of opening yourself to 
all the places that stories are present. I mean, it's like when your kid comes home from school and they can't wait to tell you about this thing that happened, that's a story that's being told. And so also to our earlier point, recognizing what kind of listener you are and, you know, the details that are important and noticing too, I think it's, I always, anytime I see a public speaker, it's hard for my brain to not, I have to really fight to stay present because I'm starting to deconstruct the talk and realize Mm -hmm. like, oh, I really wish this would have been sooner and I would have cut this out. And so I'm starting to like edit as I'm listening, which is not helpful for being present. But I think just noticing, you know, what are the times that you've been in a presentation where you've lost interest. And again, it requires a lot of presence and sense of self to take note of those moments. But yes, it's a combination of those things. And in terms of my personal processes, my clients are really active. I like for them to be very active in the editing process where I want to make sure I'm preserving their tone and their voice, but they're the holders of the story. And so I will ask them questions to try to bring us the audience to a specific time and place because details help paint a picture mm-hmm. and and they also create a sense of emotion. And it's interesting because other kind of coaching work I do related to stories and inclusion in the workplace, it's really about deepening our relationship with terms we hear like belonging or inclusion or other concepts, which can tend to feel like these abstract things, but we all have a personal connection to them. So it's about taking people in these groups back to very specific moments in time where you can picture a moment where you felt like your whole self, or you can picture places where you know you belong and this is why, and all of that story, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think also asking yourself why you want to do that. I mean, I always start there, you know? So it's like, oh, you want to be super famous. That's, that's good. Let's dream big, but we got it be well rehearsed and all the things that need to happen beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's to the point I said <laughs> at the beginning before we started, which was my theme for this year is from the grandiose to the granular. So you got to get the basics down of mastering your own storytelling before you can be a famous speaker. Whoever's yeah. listening there, you know, the interesting thing you said there about when you're tuning into other speakers and because of your formal training, um, part of that is your, your, you've been habituated to a certain way of approaching it. And obviously because you're a coach as well, that that's an interesting reflection where you're struggling to focus on being present. And it's, and for me, that is the ultimate task in daily life for everything anyway. Right. So it's interesting to both as a coach and as a speaker yourself, notice there's also, I think two different levels of presence. It's like presence as the speaker and listener or sorry, presence as the person who's listening and presence as the uh, speaker speaking. And I find that in my own experiences of public speaking, speaking, being an entrepreneur and doing, you know, tons of pitches on uh, for, for my various startups that never end and probably many more pitches to come that um, I've had moments where as I'm pitching those things, I'm, I'm kind of escaping away from the present moment. And I'm like, Oh, and then I, I, I'm like, got to come back in to the present moment. And if you think too far of like, when I'm reflecting on speaking to the audience, if I, if I sometimes dial too much into the present also, then I get a little bit nervous. So it's this really delicate balance. And I'm not a nervous person when I speak. I actually really love it. And I think the nerves planned as supporting me, but I've discovered that it's this delicate balance of like, 
not being too present so that you're like, whoa, I'm speaking right now. Like I'm, dude, you're on stage. It's like, I'm, and then if you reflect, you're like, oh no. And then you kind of get out of your delivery of the story. But if you're, if you're reflecting like more cerebrally that like, I'm just telling the story and then you're kind of fading off. You're not, so it's this really, for me, that's what I've experienced is this delicate balance of like not being too dialed in or too cerebral in the story. I'm just like, it's like, it's like almost like a Zen. You have to be super Zen and like your thoughts, like, okay, this thoughts comes in, that's gone. Okay. This thought comes in, that's gone. You know? Yeah. It's noticing. It's just the mm. noticing, which is exactly, it's like meditate or in yoga. I feel like every time my yoga instructor says, if your mind is wandering, come back and I swear every time she's talking to me, I'm like, how did she know my mind was wandering? But you're right. It's a really delicate balance. And I am a pretty great overthinker. So I am trying in 2024, I'm like, underthinking is in this year. I'm going to try to do more underthinking, which feels really scary. But you're right. It is, it is super, it's a delicate, and it's constant. That's the thing is that what you're describing is also, it's a constant act of noticing and responding and also responding from a place that isn't critical, you know, because I think that's the biggest thing when you're talking about that Zen is you notice the thought, you don't judge the thought, but you keep either moving with it or past it or thank it. And that's the same thing with presenting. And I, I've learned over the years that I, so I recharge alone and I've learned over the years that I am a little bit more introverted than I realized, which always surprises people because I do speaking and I, and I do go to events and such. And, and I always say, I don't know, it's this part of me that I can access and turn on and it's not fake. You know, I'm, I'm happy to be there and I'm super enthused to be doing the presentation and I mean every part of it. But there is a part that I have learned to access, to turn it on, so to speak. And then I know that I need to recharge doing the complete opposite, which is being alone and and recharging mm-hmm. my battery so that I can continue to show up that way. So, yeah, it's yeah, I love that. I love that you said the, the art of the art of noticing. That's that's very delicious. And then the other one is underthinking is in this year. I totally agree with you on that. And I think something that I've been more mindful of kind of we started off talking about communicating in our interpersonal relationships is I've been more mindful to put up boundaries and identify when I feel that I'm over communicating. And I feel that perhaps the conversation itself is actually an over communication of said phenomena, whatever it is. And I simply state that, look, I think we've kind of explored this from my perspective, I'm done communicating about this topic right now. I need some space and time to digest it. And I just feel like it's not helpful to continue communicating about said topic. Is there anything else you'd like to share? And then kind of close it out because I, I really do feel in modern society, we are subjected to over communicating a lot of things that sometimes it, it doesn't require that much communication. It requires a stepping back to like either go digest, work through it or just simply action. Like one example that's very basic for me is like, or even here, because we're talking about public speaking, it's like, you need to just practice speaking as well. So like, maybe you need to practice by yourself before you go get on a stage and speak to a bunch of people. And, and, And that's a doing thing, even though yes, the irony is you're speaking. It's like, that's still a doing thing. You're getting up and you're doing and you're communicating. So that's something I've been more mindful of because I really do think 
like, you know, I've, I've over communicated and overthought a lot of things and I want to like scale that back for myself and for others too. It's exhausting talking. Like, what's <laughs> it is and processing and that's so wonderful that you communicate it that way because it lets the other person know I've reached the end of whatever that is for now. It's never a permanent state. There's, there might be room to come back to it, but I think part of it is too, what is the intention here? So often when I'm listening and I have to do this a lot with my children, when I'm, they're telling me something and I'm trying to be a lot better at saying, are you just saying this because you want me to listen? Do you want me to respond to this? It's the same thing too. And I find that I'm over explaining it takes a great deal of energy to be able to take that step back and ask myself, what's the intention here? Am I over explaining because I really need this person to just acknowledge what I'm saying? Am I trying to change their mind? Why am I overthinking, over explaining? Um, that's, it's, that's exhausting by itself, let alone just communicating, you know? So it's all, it's just, there's a lot of energy poured into communicating and managing relationships in all forms. It is, I think if you're doing it in, I think in a mindful way, trying to live within your integrity and with intention, it is mm -hmm. a, a lot of energy is being expended. Yeah. And there's a nice little segue here to kind of single parenting. Um, we're both single parents, right? So I'm curious how um, being a single parent has impacted your storytelling journey of, you know, wanting to coach people and how having a child or children uh, has changed your experience of storytelling and how it's inspired it or, uh, and also how storytelling plays a part in your dating experiences as a single parent, like, you know, what information are you conveying and what stories do you tell those that are coming into your life? Well, there's a lot, a lot of juicy nuggets in there. Um, I will say, I mean, the first thing that came to mind, it's interesting because one of the first things that came to mind is related to the story I was telling myself about what it meant to be a single parent. And I realized mm. that I had this idea I was carrying that being a single parent was equal to struggle or suffering and that it was hard, which it is hard and it has its challenges. And also it is joyful and it is amazing and it is all of these other things. But I, in the early parts of being, a, I have been a single parent for a little over 10 years now. And so I've had a lot of time to think about what story I was telling myself, you know, in the early parts of the separation and the person I've become in the last 10 years. But early on, I was really clinging to this narrative on, I associate single parenting with this idea of struggle and it doesn't have to be that way. And it's funny, I just found that note to self in one of my journals the other day. Um, so that was part of it. Um, I'd like to say to that point that that is something that I myself being a single parent of four and a half years now, it was something that just seemed to naturally appear that that my conception of single parenting is that my life is going to be very difficult, which yes, it is difficult in and of itself, but it's also beautiful and amazing. And I'm proud of where I've arrived at as a single parent, co-parenting and healthy relationship. But the initial narrative was one that I'm, you know, I don't want to say it this way, but I was like, now I'm like the lone wolf dad. And like, you know, it, who's going to want to be with the lone wolf dad? Because it's like, 
they're going to, they're going to think that I'm going to have all this drama and they're going to, you know, and I was kind of creating, creating that story of how it would be. But I do think generally speaking, and maybe society is changing and I want to partly be a voice for that change, actually, these narratives that single parents create, especially when they become single parents. But I do think the general assumption that we have of single parents out the gate is like maybe damaged goods, a lot of drama, not a good relationship with your co-parent. Because when I tell, and I know from my experience, when I tell people that I have the best fucking relationship with my co-parent, like we go to events together, we, the, it, people like can't compute. It's like a machine that's breaking down. They're like, what? And I'm like, no, like I want, to, I want to change this narrative. And so, but I know initially just like, I really felt that. And I felt that that was partly a societal construction that I was like, this is going to be hell on earth, you know, like, and yeah, it was hard, but. That's actually just, I think, a fiction that has been kind of templatized. And now I, from my own experience going through it, want to change that larger narrative because I don't think that's the case. I think, in fact, what it the 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 ultimate goal that's come out of it is that family can look different than what we thought it would be, and a, a blended family and a a different cultural and linguistic family, all those things. Family is just a different shape. And there was a different shape before, but now there's this new beautiful shape that's been created. Well, so, yeah, I, I can relate to that so much. I think you and I had pre previously talked about that. I also am in a very healthy co-parenting relationship, and we also do events together. In fact, we spent New Year's together at Disneyland, and it was this really amazing. beautiful moment where we don't travel together otherwise or very rarely but we've reached a point all these years of being co-parents where there's this morning where the girls and I have two daughters and their dad went to the park early we had about two and a half hours just the four of us before we joined the rest of the family and I just remember sitting on the Disney train and just being so grateful and feeling so happy about it. And just, mm -hmm. and also my kids were a little weirded out because they're like, this is weird. You know, we were riffing off of each other and laughing at each other's cheesy jokes. I'm like, this could be all the time, you know? And yeah. it's been a lot of work to get there. And it's interesting because I think early in my journey, not, I was, I was perpetuating this idea of suffering and struggle and also noticing the way in which I talked about my ex to mm -hmm. match what, how other people did it, or I think to realize, I think in part it was to make other people feel more comfortable because mm -hmm. I think because it's a less common narrative or seemingly so, I don't think it actually is to your, to your point that I get along so well with him and we do things together. He just retired. I threw him a retirement party. I care about him. He's my family and he will always be my family. And that mm -hmm can be true as I seek a meaningful partnership with someone else. And it does not have to be in conflict with that. And I will say that has been hard to find in my dating experience. And I think it just, even in talking about this with you, it's making me realize that it might just be that the folks I've met, the only narratives they know are the ones that we're talking about. And it's just uncomfortable. It might be unknown. It's hard for them to understand and maybe trust it because mm -hmm. they don't maybe haven't experienced it otherwise. And so that, that has been a big one is this, I have, we have a really great situation. I'm grateful for it. And we've worked hard at it. And now I talk about it the way I think, I wish I always had been, but I'm talking about it the way you are, you know, it's just really refreshing. Yeah. I think there's tons that we can unpack there for sure on even another episode. And I'm, another I'm episode, we're gonna, yeah. <laughs> that's another episode, but yeah. uh, 
Yeah. And just curious in terms of, so with that in mind, like you just brought up your dating experience and sharing, you know, once you reframed your story of what single parenting was like, what co-parenting was like, and now you're in the dating, you know, you, you have been dating or you are dating, what, and you kind of just revealed the answer, but I'm curious of like, how has those, how has that storytelling shaped these experiences? Because in, from what you just said, I can relate by, it is very challenging to find somebody that can empathize and understand and trust that where you're at in your experience with your co-parent is valid and true and, and that you're, you're bearing it all. Like, that's what I do. I'm like, I'm going to be candid with you. I have the best relationship with my co-parent and this is how it is. And, and there's nothing more in the world that matters to me to have that relationship because of my son and, and showing him what a good relationship can look like, regardless of how we thought it was supposed to be. But it is hard to discover people that, and I'm not saying that someone needs to, and it's okay if they don't want to be part of my life and they're, and it's not for them. That's totally fine. And I'm totally comfortable with that, but I am curious of how you've navigated that and, um, and how that's kind of played a factor in your own dating journey. Mm -hmm. I think this, I think very similarly, I am, much more not that I wasn't open before but I think I'm a lot more direct and it comes up sooner and and I think and I think that's important in general for being very clear from the beginning um but I think I, in the past I might have reserved it for like further into the process for some reason because I felt like oh well this will be something that I introduce later but I think also as the nature of my relationship with him has evolved and become better and stronger versions of what we had, I'm like, oh no, this is front and center. This will always play a part in this dynamic. And I think I've just been a little bit, I think like you said, a little bit more candid upfront because that gives the other person information and they can decide if that is something that feels like something that's comfortable or something they're willing to explore. And yeah, I, there's someone I tried dating last year that at some point said, you know, at some point they said something like, I'd like to replace him. I mean, there was something like that absurd. And I was like, oh, no, that's never going to happen. Like this person, he is my family and that is how I choose to see him and will forever be a part of my family. I don't care how old the girls are going to be. We are family for as long as we are family forever. And mm -hmm. I would rather... Yeah, that's not like that was an instant incompatibility, but I'm glad they said it out loud. You know, I was like, that is crazy. But yeah, I think I'm just a lot more candid up front. And, and I, and I think I've also, the other side of that is become a little bit more understanding or receptive. I don't fully understand it because I can't fully understand not being okay with it because I'm living it. But I think I've become a little bit more, um, yeah, I guess understanding on why they might not be okay with it. And, and again, that's information for me too. So I think, yeah, just being a little bit more candid, but also asking follow-up questions like, huh, why mm -hmm. do you think that feels uncomfortable? And, you know, sort of inviting them to sit with what their own preconceived notions are. How we talk about exes. I think this is true when you don't have kids either. Like that's a huge red mm -hmm. flag. If someone's talking so negatively about a former partner, it's like mm -hmm. sign of a secure person is, Oh, that didn't work out. They're a really lovely person. And I don't need to say anything else about it. You know, so kids or no kids, I think the way we yep. talk about relationships, whether they're friendships or romantic, otherwise says a lot about us as well. And our capacity to, to understand our part in that story. 
and how to shape the story that we want to tell about ourselves to ourselves and to other people. Yes. So what advice would you give to individuals struggling to find their voice, you know, wherever they're at in their stage of their journey of telling their story? Oh, I think journaling for me helps me a lot, particularly when I go back and read over my entries. I think it is so important to just document moments in time because the stories I tend to tell myself is that are around, I haven't grown as much as they think I have, or I haven't accomplished whatever, sort of this idea that I've, I'm stuck in place. And when I go back and read my entries, I realize several things, you know, it might be that I've been working through this for months and I finally made a breakthrough, or I'm literally reading a different version of myself and I'm reading it from this place of feeling really proud of former me to say, oh, we made it through that. Or especially when it relates to relationships, like you're doing a better job noticing things early on, like, look at that. We're making some progress. So I would say documenting whatever form that takes. I, for me, it's journaling. I avoided it for a long time because I was avoiding parts of myself and mm -hmm. it is now a regular practice in my life. And I'm so grateful. And I'm really just looking at it through the lens of documenting. So that might be voice memos for someone that might be, a, you know, Google doc, they keep somewhere where they type their notes, but I think just documenting whatever shape that takes, because it gives you something to look back on. It captures a moment in time. And I think also when we start to see what's in our head on paper, it can either help us see how absurd something is. It might help us see something in a way we always know. I. Mm -hmm firmly believe we know, we all have a sense of knowing, we just haven't maybe fully tapped into it. And that begins with trusting our bodies and our instincts. And so I do think just seeing it in writing is really powerful. And so I think, I think that has helped me find my voice. And the second part of that, which you said earlier is practicing and start by practicing with people who know you, people you trust, people you, with whom you feel safe and I would say the third part is be open to critical feedback, you know, be open mm -hmm. to, to people maybe calling you in to say, you're not actually a great listener, or I feel like you interrupt me a lot or whatever it is. If you're really coming from a place of wanting to like learn and expand, because I think finding our voices happens in those moments of expansion. And it's mm -hmm. in those moments where we, know ourselves because we started to trust ourselves. And then I think it's just a lot easier when the story you're telling is true, you know, and it's not, doesn't have all these other filters that we, we tend to put on our stories. Hmm. That's an excellent piece to ending that the, the story being told is, is when it's more true to who you are, it's just better and it's easier and it flows naturally. So yeah. love that. Yeah. So Look, thank you so much for coming in today, Vanessa, and having this conversation. I feel like we could have five more hours of conversation about storytelling and co-parenting and all of it. Um, where do people find you? I am currently most active on Instagram and on LinkedIn. So my company name is Van Courage, which is a playoff of my last name. So I'm on Instagram as Van Courage, that's probably the best place to find me and to get to know me, um, but always happy to connect with folks professionally on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. 
Love it. Thank you everybody for tuning in today and stay tuned for what is very likely going to be an episode two. So take care, everyone.